You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. AMD investigates a report of exploitable flaws in its processors. Vietnamese threat actor Ocean Lotus gets a look from researchers. We've got some Patch Tuesday notes. Britain expels Russian diplomats in retaliation for a nerve agent attack. Russia demands to know what these cyber attacks are that the UK is said to be threatening. A brief history of Russo-British 21st century espionage and cyber tensions. And Iranian threat actor Muddy Waters threatens researchers. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 14th, 2018. Significant flaws in AMD processors have been reported by CTS Labs, a hitherto little-known Israeli firm. AMD says it's investigating, but also says it had never heard of CTS Labs, and that CTS gave AMD only a day's warning before going public. This is, of course, far shorter than the 60 to 90 days most companies tend to follow. Google's Project Zero, for example, uses 90 days. How quickly a flaw might be made public can depend upon other things, too. A present danger to public safety might well warrant swift public disclosure, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. The flaws, which affect Epic, Ryzen, Ryzen Pro, and Ryzen Mobile processors, require admin rights for exploitation. It is possible for attackers to gain admin rights in various ways, so that's not an insurmountable obstacle to exploitation. CTS Labs calls the vulnerabilities Master Key, Rise and Fall, Fallout, and Chimera. Assessment of the details is difficult. CTS Labs redacted much technical information to prevent its use by bad actors. Security experts differ in their judgment of the problem's severity, but few seem willing to defend the way the vulnerabilities were disclosed. ESET and others have been tracking Ocean Lotus, also known as APT32 or Cobalt Kitty. The threat group operates for the most part against targets in Southeast Asia. Cambodia, Laos, and the Philippines are said to be particularly affected. It shows some sophistication in its approach and operations. Yesterday was March's Patch Tuesday. Adobe issued its regular ritualistic patches of Flash Player, and if you use Flash Player... You should apply them. Microsoft came out with 14 updates that, by Krebson Security's estimation, covered more than 75 vulnerabilities. Avanti puts the number at 78. Redmond's patches affect all the still-supported Windows versions, and also Explorer, Edge, Office, SharePoint, and Exchange Server. The critical vulnerabilities addressed are said to be in browsers and related software. Mozilla Firefox and Firefox ESR also issued patches. They rate their updates as critical and say they've fixed 21 vulnerabilities. Do you use a VPN to access your corporate network remotely? 
Plenty of people do, and it's widely considered a good practice for security and privacy reasons. Patrick Sullivan is Director of Security Tech and Strategy at Akamai, and he joins us to outline some of the challenges of VPN use and why the notion of verify and never trust is a core principle worth consideration. You know, VPN is sort of a broad term. Uh, There are VPNs, you know, for point-to-point connectivity between offices. Uh, We won't talk about that today. I think we'll talk about the category of VPNs that are used to provide remote access. Um, So I think, you know, really what what we're seeing is, is at one time sort of VPNs were, if not the exclusive, certainly the dominant technology used to provide uh, remote access. And if we look at sort of the assumptions that, that went into that, there was sort of a, a network perimeter-based model that, uh, that almost everybody implemented. Uh, and really in that model, you saw users and apps inside sort of a trusted network segment, uh, typically in a corporate data center. And then there was some form of network perimeter that would separate the trusted uh, segment of the network, which was on private IPs from the untrusted public internet. Some people call this sort of a castle and mode architecture. Hmm. And VPN was the preferred technology that, that would be used to extend that uh, interior of the castle and moat, if you will, to one of our trusted employees who happened to be outside of the four walls of that corporate office. So to extend that castle and moat uh, to, to somebody's uh, remote location and give them trusted network layer access um, that they could use to access uh, corporate applications. So you all are, are advocating uh, this principle of verify and never trust. Can you take us through what that means? We're certainly one voice of, of many there. So I, I think, you know, when you look at kind of the traditional, uh, you know, VPNs are, are kind of what we're talking about today, uh, somebody would connect in uh, to that VPN for the duration of that session, maybe eight hours. Uh, and at that point, we've decided that we trust them on that VPN session. If somebody walks into our office, they're an employee, they, they connect into an Ethernet port or a corporate Wi-Fi, uh, we're trusting them at the network layer. Uh, so so really that, that that level of trust at the network layer is dangerous. We've seen that. Uh, I think there are a number of voices out there. You know, Forrester with, uh, with, with Zero Trust, Gartner talks about Carta, uh, and really they speak about the risk of trying to make a perfect macro-level security decision. You know, specifically in this case, to give somebody network layer access on a VPN for the next eight hours, right? That's a that's a macro level decision, hmm. um, and I think the opposite of that is to uh, to not trust at the network layer to to proxy each and every request uh, to inspect those and to consider identity to consider least privilege which which applications does somebody uh, need to to perform their job you know based on their their role in the organization. You know, potentially, you know, doing simple things like multi-factor authentication as well uh, as part of that configuration. So take us through what are you advocating in, in terms of implementing this sort of thing? I, I have to say it, it sounds more complicated than uh, than what we were dealing with earlier. But uh, is it is it in fact? I don't think so. Right. So I think if, if you look at the way this would work, um, in, in many cases, what you have is an access proxy. So rather than a network layer device that uh, that drops you into a trusted network segment, uh, an end user would point their browser uh, to a, a proxy. You know, DNS will will direct them there, uh, and then that proxy will have information uh, about their identity uh, in that organization. And part of that identity would be their uh, their role, their their job description. So it's actually a uh, in, in many ways it's simpler to set up and it's faster. Um, I think when when Akamai first embarked on this, we were up and running, and, and we first looked at third party retailers, and we had a system up in place in hours. Uh, because it is a SaaS-based model in the cloud, uh, 
which uh, takes away a lot of the challenges of rack and stack. That's Patrick Sullivan from Akamai. Taking a quick look at our CyberWire event tracker, coming up is the third annual Billington International Cybersecurity Summit. That's going to be on March 21st at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. And if you're in the Denver area next week on March 22nd, the Cybersecurity Summit is coming up. You can get 50% off your admission with the code CYBERWIRE50 on their website, cybersummitusa.com. To find out more about these events and to get your event listed, head on over to thecyberwire.com slash events. The U.K. is expelling 23 Russian diplomats in retaliation for the attempted assassination of a former GRU officer. Russia offered no explanation, beyond denial, before last night's midnight deadline, instead demanding explanation of rumors that the U.K. is considering retaliatory cyber attacks against Russia. Prime Minister May has said she will consider the full range of measures available to retaliate against Russia. Business Insider has a useful quick summary of what that range looks like. First, expulsion of Russian diplomats. This has been done, with 23 of them declared persona non grata. Second, formal withdrawal of official UK presence at the upcoming World Cup to be held in Russia. Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has suggested this. It seems likely to happen. Third, withdrawal of credentials from RT, the Russia Today news service. Ofcom, the independent British communications regulator, is considering pulling RT's license, and many observers think it likely to do so. If it does, Russia is likely to kick British news services out of Russia. Fourth, cyber attacks against Russia assets. This one is risky, but it's also an option that Home Secretary Amber Rudd has hinted at in the past. It's also the option Russia has itself demanded an explanation of. Britain is a capable cyber power, and it's difficult to imagine London and Moscow actually wanting to swap punches in cyberspace. On the other hand, the Five Eyes have all recently attributed NotPetya to the Russian government, and British companies figured prominently among the victims of that campaign, so there may be some sense that the battle's already been drawn. Fifth, freezing the assets of Russian oligarchs. The conservative government has come under pressure from labor, and also from others, to enact some version of the U.S. Magnitsky Act, which would enable the freezing or forfeiture of Russian assets. The government has been reluctant to do so, but this sort of retaliation would certainly hit what influence Russians' value. Her Majesty's government is asking for a UN Security Council meeting to address what it regards with reason as a Russian chemical attack on British soil. 22 people were treated for exposure to nerve agent. Three, the two targets, Sergei Skripal and his daughter, and a British first responder remain under treatment. A few hundred others in the vicinity of the attacks were offered decontamination. Another Russian, businessman Nikolai Glushkov, a fugitive from Russian justice in an Aeroflot embezzlement case and a witness in the Litvinenko assassination, which also happened in the UK, died under unexplained circumstances Tuesday in his London home. Police report signs of strangulation. Of course, Russian wet operations are widely suspected, and authorities in the UK are investigating the death as a possible act of terrorism. Alexander Litvinenko was a former FSB officer and defector who became a naturalized British subject. On November 1, 2006, Litvinenko was hospitalized for what was diagnosed as exposure to polonium-210. The dose proved lethal. 
Litvinenko died three weeks later. If Sergei Skripal and his daughter were hit with a chemical weapon, Litvinenko fell victim to a radiological one. The Muddy Water Threat Group, generally associated with Iran, also seems newly disposed to play rough. Trend micro-researchers probing a server connected to the group received a message in stereotypical terrorist lingo right out of the scriptwriter's world. Stop! Kill you, researcher! Normally, one would laugh this kind of thing off as skid nonsense, but anyone might be excused any additional wariness they might feel in the wake of what's been happening in the UK. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, welcome back. Um, You know, I have often heard that uh, when you suffer a data breach, uh, time is of the essence. And you wanted to make the point today that uh, those first 48 hours are really critical. Yeah, many times you, you don't really know if you have an incident. And when you get that first alert or when you get the first notification, the clock is really starts ticking. So during that first 48 hours, you've got to do a few things. Number one is you've got to triage and see exactly what you have. Is it nation state? Is it cryptocurrency malware? Is it cyber criminal? Is it a ransomware? And once you establish what that uh, what that type of malware is or what, what that incident is, then you need to go into 
into incident response mode, assuming that it is an, it characterized as an incident. And it's really critical that you follow your incident response procedures and, and actually that, they're, that they are developed up front. Mm. What we're seeing many times is that uh, during that first 48, there is a bit of a let's throw caution and the plan that we've worked on for the last few years or, or that we've, we've always kept in this little box ready to go break in case of cyber <laughs> emergency. And, uh, and all that goes out the door. Um, but it, it's, it's, so it's critically important that you spend the time up front and drill around a strong incident response plan. It's also important to have a retainer, to be able to reach out to another firm or organization to get help. And a lot of times what I have seen is that there's a cyber crisis or a cyber incident and the company or the enterprise hasn't prepared in getting all of the necessary paperwork done for having that incident response re retainer for outside help. And what ends up happening is there is a deluge of vendors. If it becomes public, there's a deluge of vendors trying to get their foot in the door and tell you about their solution, their service, their, their people that can help you. And assuming that you do pick an incident response vendor during this uh, first 48, then you're going to go into legal hell. <laughs> you're going to go, your own legal team will be amped up wanting to review everything because there's a there's an active incident and can you imagine trying to get an incident response retainer or incident response contract done in that period of time so you're going to go back and forth on red lines around liability around data protection classifications how your data is handled and where it's stored you don't want to do that up front you want to be able to have that retainer in place beforehand so that's as simple as picking up the phone and, and dialing uh, an incident response company and saying, I need your your services right now. Yeah, and it strikes me that because uh, so much of this, I think, when something like this happens, there's a natural tendency for people to be emotional. Something bad has happened. And the more you can plan ahead of time to help keep yourselves out of that emotional state, that probably the better off you're going to be. Absolutely. When you're, when you're going off half-cocked, if you're going off, and uh, not properly framing the problem and thinking about it in a, in a deliberate manner, uh, you are at risk of making some poor decisions. For instance, uh, one of the things that uh, is very commonplace in the industry is don't destroy the evidence, meaning if you have an incident, don't turn the machine off and don't um, ship it uh, in its shutdown state to somewhere else for examination. You want to put the system in, in hibernation mode. Hmm. By putting it in hibernation mode, that uh, gets it off the network. It is essentially sleeping, and you're able to preserve uh, the memory for future analysis. Oh, I see. So your, so your volatile memory is an important part of uh, assessing what's happened as well. Absolutely. We're seeing uh, more and more fileless based attacks, meaning attacks that are only resident within memory. A lot of these are PowerShell based in nature, and it's very difficult to go back in time without that volatile memory. Yeah. All right. Good advice as always. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. 
It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.